Okay, so over the past couple of weeks, we've been going through a series called The Doctrine of God's Love. The book, one of the books that we've kind of been working through is this book called The Rule of Love. Super helpful book. Um, if you want that book, let me know. I'm more than happy to buy it for you. I do have an account for that. Um, and so we've been going through the doctrine of God's love. One scholar called the doctrine of God's love difficult. Literally came out with a book called The Difficult Doctrine of Love of God. And so... Uh, the reason for that is because it's complex. There's a lot of different ways and different shades of the way that the Bible speaks to God's love. And so in considering the doctrine of God's love, we've considered that faithfulness as a Christian involves growing in our understanding of what it means whenever the Bible says that God is love. To, for us to grow as Christians, it means to grow in our understanding of that very idea. And so the first week of this series, uh, one of our pastors, Ryan Troglin, taught on how God's word and the world have two competing pictures of God's love. And we saw from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love, that if God is love, then we can't define love apart from God. That only makes sense. If he is love, we can't define love apart from God. If God is love, then that means that he sets the standard and the very measure of all loves. Now, part of the difficulty is that we often distort God's love by exalting some other notion of love as the object of worship. We do this all the time. And that's part of the difficulty. That's what, why it makes this doctrine difficult. In last week's session, uh, where um, Colton Quarter taught, one of our members of the church taught on um, really how God didn't become love, nor is he now love, but he has eternally been love, which means that he has always had someone to love because God is a trinity. What in the world does that mean? It just means that God is three persons in one being. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are one, right? They are one. They are God. And as we saw last week, the Father's love for the Son is the standard of all other love relationships. But that raises the question, how can God's love for his perfect son also move outwardly toward those who reject that love? How can God's love for his perfect son move outwardly then to those who actually reject that love, those who are sinners? How can his love be both holy and yet embrace sinners? That's the question that we're going to be thinking about this morning in God's love for sinners. It's been said that it's one thing to meditate upon God's love for his perfect son. It's another thing to meditate upon God's love for wayward people like us who scorn, abuse, neglect, trash, exploit, corrupt, bomb, belittle, and blaspheme. Does God see something beautiful in sinners that he doesn't have or that he needs? Is that, is that God? Is that why he loves us? Because he needs something from us. Or does he love sinners just because or no matter what they do? Well, the Lord actually gives us a biblical image and a metaphor as we begin to answer that question. And it's really the picture of marriage. It's the picture of marriage. So that's point number one, a picture of marriage or a picture of love. In the Bible, God adopts the image of marital love to describe his saving love for his people. So, for example, consider what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. You often hear 
this passage preached at weddings uh, often. Yes. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. You've got it there in your handout. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So the, lo- the husband loves his wife by sacrificing his own self-interest for her, for her good, which is ultimately exemplified in Christ laying down his life for the church. And then to build that argument, notice what Paul says next. He goes back to the creation of marriage and sex to explain that God created both, marriage and sex, God created both to point to Christ's love for the church, his bride. He says, just a couple of verse later, verses later in verses 31 through 32, that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Going back to Genesis chapter 2, that's what he's quoting. You want to Genesis, second week of Genesis, right there. You're going to get into that nitty-gritty detail. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So notice what Paul's doing right here. He is showing us that the one flesh, physical union of a husband and wife in marriage, isn't a permanent reality. Rather, it's a road sign. It's a shadow of the real thing, which is Christ's full and loving embrace of the church in the new heavens and new earth whenever he returns. That's what it's foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of whenever we will finally know our Savior, when we will finally know Christ in full. As it's been said, there will be no marriage or sex in heaven because you don't need a road sign once you've arrived. Makes sense. And then, isn't this ironic, right? Isn't this ironic? Our secular culture today uses the pleasure of sex to emphatically reject God. To emphatically reject God, sex outside of marriage. And yet, sex is actually one of the very things that God has given humanity so that we might have an illustration, so that we might actually have a language for knowing what the unfiltered, Enjoyment and love of God will be like in glory. No, not sex in glory, but it's a picture, it's an illustration of what that unfiltered enjoyment and love will be like. As one pastor put it, God created us with sexual passion so that there would be language to describe what it means to cleave to him in love and what it means to turn away from him to others. The glory of Christ's loving embrace is the pinnacle of marriage. That's what it is. It's the pinnacle of marriage in general and sex in particular. God loves his people as a husband loves his wife. And marriage is one picture used to speak of Christ's love for his people. But why? Why did Christ have to give his own life for his bride? That's because she's sinful. Her sin is known as idolatry. And so the picture of God's love being marriage, the picture of our sin or unfaithfulness to God is adultery. It's adultery. And we see this image throughout the scriptures. In Exodus 34, God declares his name as jealous, and then he warns his people not to commit adultery adultery or to whore after other gods by sacrificing to them, right? That's just the biblical language. You see it a lot 
in the Old Testament, not to whore after other gods. It's part of the reason why God didn't want his people to intermarry with the other nations because those nations would take them away from him, right? And causes people to go whore after other gods. And yet this adultery was more than just worshiping a physical image. It's more than that. It's ultimately spiritual in nature. So in Numbers chapter 15, verse 39, God tells Israel to remember all the Lord's commands and to obey them. And then he says, and to not prostitute yourselves by following your heart and your own eyes. Now, our culture will often tell us to follow or to listen to our hearts in order to be able to find the answers of life, to look inwardly. But God is telling his people that prostitution and spiritual adultery actually begin by following the desires of your heart very different than what our culture is telling us. And so when we look at the New Testament even, the Apostle John warns that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions is actually not from the Father, but is from the world in 1 John chapter 2 verse 16. James warns of the same thing in his letter when he says that friendship with the world is enmity with God in James chapter 4 verse 4. The adulterous heart and eyes aren't just those that worship the gods of the nations in the Old Testament, such as Molech or Baal. Rather, the adulterous heart is the one that loves anything more than God. It loves the world and the things in it more than God. It pursues pleasure and peace and praise from the world rather than from God. We all do this in our lives, and we all have seen it all over the place, especially in American culture. The most extended expression of this theme right here throughout the Bible is really seen in the book of Hosea, if you know anything about the book of Hosea. God tells Hosea to marry a wife who is just going to be unfaithful to him. And his wife's name is Gomer. And sure enough, Gomer does what God says she'll do. She sleeps with other men. She bears three children. The text says that only the first is Hosea's. And eventually, the wife, Gomer, leaves Hosea. The point that God is making with this story is that Gomer's whoredom actually illustrates Israel's adultery toward God. And in one sense, we all sympathize with Hosea, and yet God uses this book to actually hit us and hit his people with the fact that you're actually Gomer. We were created by God, for God, and yet we're unfaithful to him. The desires of our hearts run after the things of this world such as success, such as sex, and the praise of others. And if this is our universal, our universal human condition, then how in the world can God still love us as the sinners that we are? How's that possible? Well, point number two, this love, this love of God is actually a saving and a selecting or a particular love. So in the first week of this series, Ryan Troglin, as I said a minute ago, he taught about the contrast between a worldly view of love versus a biblical view of love. And in that lesson, he showed five five distinguishable ways of speaking about God's love. And I I just want to look at a couple right here. And when we're talking about these distinguishable, distinguishable ways of speaking of God's love, we're not talking about five different loves. We're talking about just love, right? Because God is love. We're talking about his love. 
And so these are just different shades of being able to speak of, to God's love. And so in this point, I want us to consider two of those five ways that the scripture speaks about God's love. The first of which speaks about God's saving love toward this fallen world. God's saving love toward, his, toward this fallen world. The classic text is John 3.16 on this aspect of God's love, where Jesus says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, by the world, Jesus isn't just speaking about physical creation right there. He's speaking about the world in opposition to God, in rebellion against God. That's what he's speaking about. Now, we're all a part of that world. We're all a part of that world who is apart from Christ. And though God stands in judgment against this, rebellion, this rebellious world, he actually doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked or in their rebellion. He actually calls the wicked to turn and to repent from their sinful ways and to live as God says through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 33, verse 11. So he stands in judgment against them, and yet he has no pleasure in their death. That's why he calls them to turn to him and trust in him. That's the first way, that kind of saving love. The second way that God speaks about, or that the Bible speaks about God's love is actually far more frequent, and that's God's particular or selecting love for his people. It's his love for his own people. So go back to Hosea and Gomer again. Someone read Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It should be right there in your handout. Okay, so Hosea marries Gomer while she's in her sin. (laughs) What a picture. He marries Gomer while in her sin, and then he pays the bride price, according to just ancient customs. There was a bride price price that would be paid. He pays that bride price for her so that she would belong to him exclusively. Now, this story serves as a picture of God's particular love toward his people in a way that's not directed toward other nations. And yet Christ would one day actually do the same. He would be offering his own life as a ransom price for sins by dying on the cross so that we might belong to him. That's the whole point, that it would foreshadow and look forward to Christ's own death and resurrection on our behalf. And so God says to his people, he weds his people to him in Hosea 2.20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. We're going to see that same thing whenever Christ weds us to himself that we may know him. But why does God love his people? Why does he love them? Point number three, God's covenantal love. God's covenantal love. So does God just love his people because they're worthy of that love or because they're lovely or there's something beautiful in them to love? Does he love them just because or no matter what? Well, the scriptures, I think, clearly show us that that answer is no. Paul tells us that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us in Romans chapter 5, 
verse 8. It wasn't because we were lovely that God loved us, which makes actually his love all the more lovely, that we didn't have to dress ourselves up in order to receive his love. Instead, God loves, God's love for his people is ultimately wrapped up in his love for his son, which we talked about last week. He sends his own son to win his bride, and then he sets his love and his affection on that bride because of his son. So like the father at a wedding, right, who looks at his daughter-in-law, right, his new daughter-in-law, he hugs her, he welcomes her into the family, and he says, you're my, now my daughter. That's what he's doing. He calls her daughter. As Jesus says in John 14, 21, he who loves me will be loved by my father. And later in John chapter 16, verse 27, for the father himself loves you because you've loved me. And so God's saving love for us is a covenantal love because we've been wed to his son through marital covenant. But when or how does that happen? How in the world are we like wed to Christ? When does that happen? How does that happen? It happens whenever we repent of our sin. When we repent of our sin before God and we trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior who has died for our sin and rose again to conquer sin and death, that happens. We are then wed to Christ. And when that happens, the Father actually unites us to his Son through the new covenant of his blood so that our sin becomes his and his righteousness becomes ours. That's part of the exchange in marriage. So on my wedding day, my wife's car payment became mine, and my nutty family became hers, right? That's, that's part of the exchange in marriage that people experience when they get married, right? If you incur a bunch of debt, well, you're basically giving that debt to your spouse now. Or if you've got a ton of money, well, then you're going to be paying off that debt as soon as you get married, right? Part of that is the sweet exchange, and it's the same for us who are united and wed to Christ through faith. All that is Christ becomes ours. It's like the father taking his daughter-in-law aside and saying, hey, do you see the Ferraris? Do you see the mansion? Do you see the climbing wall in the disc golf course? Right? Do you see the pool and everything else? Like with my property. All that is yours because of my son. Because you're now wed to him. It's the same for us. And part of that sweet exchange is that we receive the love that the Father has for the Son, which is incredible. Think about this. Think about this. This is the sinless Son for whom and by whom all things were created and with whom the Father is pleased. And yet that love for his Son is the love that we actually share in and through repentance and faith. We share in that love that God has for this one with whom he is pleased and by whom and through whom he created everything. So the question is, do you actually know that love? That's the question. Do you know this love? And if not, repent and trust in Jesus, God's son, so that you might share in what he created you for, which is that love. In Revelation chapter 19, an incredible picture. We get an incredible picture of this heavenly marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb being Christ. And his bride, his people are all prepared for this feast. And then the angel actually says to the apostle John, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
But the question is, is your seat reserved at that supper? Has your seat been reserved at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Point number four, God's contra-conditional love. Now, I know when you read that, you're thinking, what in the world? Why? Why? I do so much online Zoom already. Why do you have to kill me and muzzle me with this word, contra-conditional? But I think oftentimes people speak of God's unconditional love in unhelpful ways. Ultimately, we can't earn our salvation. It's a gift of God that we receive apart from who we are and what we've done to earn it. We can't earn it. It's a gift. And so before we actually use that term unconditional to speak of God's love, it's actually helpful to consider a couple of things. Number one, in order for God's love for sinners to be carried through, there has to be a price that was paid for it. Christ happily paid that price. Right? So there, there are things that cost God something, his own son. Second thing that we notice, that the bride is actually required by God to turn from other lovers. It's not like, hey, I come to Jesus, and then I can just keep loving all my other things as well. Like, I've got Jesus, and I've got all these other loves out here, uh, and these things that I'm striving after. Well, no. Whenever we come to Christ, we've got to be fully devoted to him, or else God's wrath actually remains on us for our sin. Now, I know that sounds shocking, actually coming out of the words of Jesus in John three thirty six, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Third thing we notice, those who love Jesus will obey his commands. As Jesus says in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Each of those are biblical conditions on God's love because they have to do with his holiness. God's holiness is loving, and his love is holy. You can't, like, separate God out to these kind of individual parts. He is all of them all at once. And so he is both holy, he is both loving, and so his holiness is loving and his love is holy. His love is always conditioned on his holiness because he's a holy God. And so he won't love in any way that's contrary to his holiness, but rather he'll love always in a way that's conditioned upon it. So it's not as helpful to use the term unconditional. Instead, I think a better term is that pesky word right there in your handout, contra-conditional love. I tried to think of something better, but this was the one I think that has been spoken of uh, that I think is helpful. And that contra-conditional love um, is actually God's love for us that's contrary to what we deserve. That's that contra. It just means contrary. It's contrary to what we deserve. And so God gifts us with his love, though we've lived contrary to his holiness. That's what it's getting at. His love depends on Christ's worthiness and not our own. Think back to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. You've got it in your handout. Paul says that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for the church. In order that, why? What's the purpose of that love? Why? What's the purpose of that giving himself up? It's in order that he might sanctify her and present her to himself as holy and without blemish. The purpose of Christ's sacrifice is our sanctification or our becoming like Jesus. That's the purpose of his sacrifice. And so Jesus says, I do, and we've got to say, I do. <laughs> we have to repent of our sins and trust in Christ. It's a two-way street. And we do that through repentance of faith and living in an obedience which he actually has made possible now through the gift of his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So let's put all this together. Let's apply it. 
What then is biblical love? Point number five. What is biblical love? Number one, love is affirming what is from God in those we love. Love is affirming what is from God in those that we love. It says that I affirm you because you're worthy and precious to me because you're from God. You're an image bearer of God. And to do so is actually the beginning of compassion. And so as to just summarize, Jonathan Lehman in, in his book, I think he summarizes compassion really, really well. He says that compassion is love's reaction to seeing one of God's image bearers hurting or oppressed or caught in sin or under duress. That's what compassion is. And this love is drawn to those in suffering or those who are running after sin. And so that love ought to move outwardly to other people in sin or those who are struggling and suffering. It takes caution around that sin, though, recognizing that we are susceptible to sin. However, it doesn't forsake loving the person in sin. So not only is this the beginning of compassion, it's also actually the beginning of a righteous anger toward injustice. We see a lot of this right now. A righteous anger toward injustice. It sees the oppressed and the abused and it absolutely abhors it. It abhors it because it doesn't align with God's character. And this love doesn't affirm something as righteous and then ultimately, right, then ultimately God calls sin. It doesn't affirm what is unrighteous. That would actually be cowardice and hatred. And so this love is from God and will affirm what aligns with God's holy and righteous character. Second thing, not only does it affirm what is, uh, what is from God in others, but it also, love is giving oneself to seeing God exalted in those we love. So ultimately, we will serve others best when we love God most. That's what we've got to remember. We will serve others best when we love God most. And we do so by taking pleasure in someone else's good, which is always God. The highest good that you could ever give to somebody is ultimately God. That's what it is. There will be no different ways of seeing God or Christ exalted in those we love. It's ultimately, right, in God. Now, there are different ways, though, that we can actually see this, that God uses us to uh, see Christ exalted in those that we love. So at times, that's going to mean taking a student aside and encouraging them how to live faithfully, right? Encouraging them in how they're living faithful also by just serving others that they're around. Sometimes it's going to mean correcting another guy or a girl for gossiping or slandering. This is what this looks like. That's an act of love. At other times, it means sharing Christ with a new student you met on campus or uh, in class. That's an act of love. It's going to look different to my wife and kids as it will to you and your roommate, right? Love is going to look different in different settings. And so the glory of this is that God-centered love actually includes both the giving and the receiving of joy because God is our supreme joy. So do you want to live a joy-filled life? Well, then love others. Because in doing so, you're giving that love of God to others and you're receiving it as well. Which is why our prayer ought to be that of Paul to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 3.19 where he says, May the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, may you know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So when this prayer happens, we are loving others best. And we ought to be praying that not only for ourselves, 
but also for others. So what does this mean for us? Point number six, the practice of love. Last point. What does this mean for us? A couple of lessons that we learn about God's love for sinners and how that should affect our love for others. Number one, it means that the church's mission is to be making disciples. People are confused as to what in the world the church is to be doing. And if our greatest desire is to see others know Christ and to love him, then it only makes sense that we need to tell others about Christ. It only makes sense. If this is the one that we love most, then we want others to love him most as well. And so you know a church is loving whenever it prioritizes the preaching of God's word, whenever it prioritizes discipling its members. So what does that look like? It looks like hearing the gospel preached in every sermon on Sunday mornings. What does that look like throughout the week? It looks like members regularly meeting with one another throughout the week to encourage each other from God's word. It's going to look like hearing from members about how they're seeking to try to have gospel conversations with their neighbors through inviting them over for dinner or trying to engage their classmates throughout the week. The point isn't to turn every conversation into a gospel conversation. That's not the point. The point is that we love others best when we understand their greatest good to be found in knowing Christ. That's the point. A part of how that happens is we have to tell them about Christ. So because we all come into this world dead in our sins, we've got to be made right with God. And this is the church's uppermost priority for the sake of love, to see others made right with God. Second thing, Christians should be a people of compassion and justice. And I talked about this just a little bit ago. They should be a people of compassion and justice. Not only are we called to make disciples, we're also called to be disciples and to obey everything that Jesus commanded us. We see that in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. And that includes what the Bible says about compassion in doing justice individually. Though the gospel's work of forgiveness is the greatest concern, we can't separate sin against others from sin against God. After all, anyone who loves God and hates his brother, the Apostle John says, is a liar. They're a liar, 1 John 4.20. And so the church is where we learn to actually model true justice and compassion to the nations. Our church leadership, those who are elders within the church, ought to be models for good works, which we see Paul exhorting Timothy and Titus in those letters to watch their own lives closely, to model good conduct, and to do good works, to teach others to do the same. Right? So a church that is loving is going to be having leaders who are modeling that love through compassion and justice. Ultimately, pastoral job descriptions should be devoted to equipping the saints for the work of ministry. That's what it should be devoted to, Ephesians 4.12. But they're equipping the saints for good works when they're modeling those good works before them. Much like the law school equips lawyers to practice and execute the law. Okay? Pastors are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and part of that is just modeling what good works actually looks like so that the saints would see that and then go and replicate it. Number three, Christians display God's glory together and apart. So if God-centered love seeks to affirm what is from God in others and see God exalted in others, then church members will view their time gathered together on Sunday and scattered throughout the week as opportunities to actually display God's love to one another. That is the context and the opportunity to be able to display that love. We're going to be on the lookout for ways to be able to love one another as Jesus has loved us. We're going to strive to forgive one another. 
We're to strive to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. Because through this love, the world actually knows, right? It's displaying, it's a witness to the world that we are Jesus' disciples, as Jesus says in John 13, verses 34 through 35. Last thing that we see practically. To belong to a church is to belong to a covenant. So there are different kinds of covenants, okay? There's a marriage covenant. There's a membership covenant. Membership covenants are different than a marriage covenant. We shouldn't break marriage covenants, right? God hates divorce. We shouldn't be breaking marriage covenants. However, we're free to go transfer our membership from one church to another, if that be the case. Like if you move, or maybe it could be a healthier situation at a different, different church if necessary, right? So they're different. And when Christ united us to himself, he also united us to a family through the new covenant of his blood. And Jesus has given us instructions on actually how to live is that new covenant community locally through churches. That's how that happens. The point is that we take responsibility of one another's profession of faith as we see Jesus speak about in Matthew 18 through local churches. And so a church covenant, whether you want to use that term or not, the church covenant is ultimately a statement on how we seek to live out those promises that we've made to care for one another and to bear one another's burdens and sorrows, to help one another walk with Christ. We cannot fulfill our new covenant obligations that Jesus commanded with Christians everywhere. That's why Christ gave us the local church to be able to do that locally. So how else are we going to be able to live obediently to what Paul commanded in his letters to the churches? How else would we do that if we're not actually in lockstep with other members of a local church? Part of how you do that is that you have people you've committed to. And so I just want to encourage you, whether it's here, whether it's somewhere else, if you are a believer, to join a church and let that church have spiritual oversight and care for your own walk with Christ, right? Seek to love others within the local church and, see, and have others love you as well. We have a discovery cl- class coming up October 8th if you're interested in what membership is about here um, and what that looks like. And so they're going to go through all of that October 8th on Thursday night. Food's provided. All right. Finishing this up, God is love, and his love for his son is the standard of love for all of the relationships. We love others by affirming what is from God and then giving ourselves to seeing God exalted in others. The primary place that Jesus has given us to do just that is the local church. Okay? All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go to discussion groups. Father, we give praise to you uh, that you have given in Christ, you have given the local church. Not only have you united us to your son through faith, but Lord, you've brought us into a covenant family. It is to give spiritual oversight to our walk with Christ, and yet where we are responsible uh, for giving care to other Christians as well. And so Lord, help us to understand the importance of that. Help us to see that That community is where love is displayed, and yet it moves outwardly into the community at large to display that love of Christ. Lord, help us to be faithful and bold and clear in our proclamation of the gospel as we seek to love this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.